Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Well, how in the hell are you, my old friend? Thanks for coming in and hanging out with us once again on the Stream Police Podcast. I am Clint Davis. I talk about movies and television from my closet on the outskirts of Columbus, Ohio. They wouldn't let me into the actual capital, so I have to settle for the outskirts. But that's where I am talking to you about movies and television once a month here on the Stream Police Podcast. We've been doing it for several years now. This is our 69th episode. Let me repeat that for you. 69. Nice. Nice. And man, I got plenty to talk about with you today. And I'm going to need it too because you've only got me today. We're flying solo. Uh, Andy is is not joining us this month. He's just spent too much time listening to Western Stars, the new Springsteen record. He's, I mean, he's. it's really, it's gotten really sad. He's locked himself in, you know, his little studio there in Dayton in his room, in his spare room, and he's got him and his dog, Desi, and they're just hold up listening to the album. You know, I really feel for Desi because I don't know if he's even a Springsteen fan. I have to imagine he is at this point, you know, after living with Andy for that long. But, yeah, he's just he's been listening to the album nonstop on repeat for the last month, and he refused to stop listening to it even for a half an hour to record this show. So I don't know what to do. So hopefully next month we'll have him again. But uh, it's just me today that you got along with you. I have to urge you, my friend, follow me, of course, on Twitter. I am over there at Mr. Clint Davis, if you want to uh, read. I, I write about movies and, and TV and, and things like that on there. I write about wrestling a lot when I'm watching that. <laughs> That's my trashy uh, trashiest thing I watch on TV. But, hey, I'm not going uh, to feel bad about it, man. We all need our guilty pleasures. But, anyway, follow me there if you want to you know, read some things I write about movies and TV and, and reach out to me. It's like the best way to get in touch with me. And also follow me on Instagram. Same thing, Mr. Clint Davis, Mr. Clint Davis. I definitely want you to follow me on Instagram because that's the way to see what movies I'm watching as I'm watching them. Every night when I watch a movie, I take a picture of the screen. I try to remember almost always, um, uh, except for when I'm in the theater because I don't want to get busted for uh, you know bootlegging or something. I don't want to get my privileges of going to the movies taken away from me. So I do it uh, every time I'm watching a movie at home, which is most of the time now. You know that I'm a dad and everything. I can't go to the theater nearly as much as I used to. Um, but it's okay because there's so many old ones I still haven't watched yet. Uh, and they're better anyway, right? So I take a picture of the screen and I talk about what it is that I'm watching that night. And I, you know, put it on my Instagram story. So if you want to follow me there, you can see kind of what I'm watching and give me your thoughts on it as well. If it's something that you've seen, or maybe it's something you want to see, if you want to ask me anything about that particular movie. 
Um, so let me uh, get things started as I usually do by lighting up my stogie here. As I said, I'm sitting in my closet in Columbus. I like to get it nice and smoky, nice and uh, nice and warm in here, smelling good. It's kind of already built into the walls now that we've lived here for almost coming up on a year now. So it's finally getting that aroma that I like for when I'm recording these these shows for you. But uh, I still have a little ways to go. So let me get it going. We're going to talk a little bit later about uh, a movie that truly disturbed the hell out of me. And I have watched a lot of horror, talked about a lot of horror over the years on this show. I've watched a lot of those cult movies that are really, truly disturbing, and they're just made to be disturbing. But this one kind of outdid them all. But first, let's talk about television, and let's specifically talk about TV theme songs. This, our, uh, our monthly, I should say, look at the greatest TV show theme song of all time for this week. Uh, is our 42nd entry into the canon of greatest TV show theme songs ever. And I was looking back through our picks that we've done, uh, going back now for 42 episodes, and I realized that it's been since November of 2018 that we featured a theme song that you would consider one of those classic examples of like a sitcom theme from the 70s or 80s, which was like the golden age of American sitcoms. And American sitcom theme songs, really, that was the golden age for them. Theme songs weren't back then just something to be, you know, shuffled off for five seconds and, you know, just like an inconvenience. Well, we got to have a theme song, so just throw it together. They were like serious things, and they had in-house composers, and they, you know, usually they would try to sum up, like, the show or the feeling of the show in the song, and it would be an original composition so it was a big deal back then and uh i was like you know we haven't had one of those classic sitcom theme songs since the last one we did was welcome back cotter in november of 2018 so i'm gonna go to the 80s i've got a prime one for you all today okay one of the best ever as far as a classic sitcom theme song in celebration of the 30th anniversary of this series which debuted on september 22nd 1989 on abc i am picking the theme song from Family Matters as the greatest TV show theme song of all time this week. Oh boy, I tell you, if you don't know every word to this son of a bitch, then you definitely did not grow up watching TGIF or the nonstop syndicated run of this show that it had all the way through the 1990s. I swear, I think there was a time where you could turn on some channel at some point back in the 90s and you would see an episode of Family Matters airing somewhere at any hour of the day. It's a rare condition this day and age to read any good news on the newspaper page. Family Matters was as classic a setup for a family sitcom as you can possibly get. The, the whole premise for the show, the pitch, basically, it's about this big family that lives together in a single house in Chicago, including some of their extended family members, and they're always getting visits from, like, wacky friends of the family or one particularly wacky neighbor. That's all it is. That's the entire setup for this series, which would end up running for more than 200 episodes. Well, then there must be some magic clue inside these gentle walls. That neighbor that I mentioned was this little character you may have heard of named Steve Urkel, 
And he would completely end up hijacking the show and becoming so popular in later years that people, instead of calling the show Family Matters, they would usually just call the show Urkel. Like, I remember growing up, and this was one of my favorite shows growing up, and Urkel was like my idol growing up. I just thought he was hilarious. I always would say, did I do that? I thought I was so funny. Um, and I thought I was Steve Urkel. I'd pull my pants up and stuff like that. I think a bunch of kids my age were doing that same thing. But anyway, so people would just would be talking to each other, and I remember them calling the show Urkel. I thought the show was called Urkel. I didn't even really realize it was called Family Matters, even though the title would show up on the screen. It was like people just called it Urkel. Did you watch Urkel this week? So that was kind of what the show became known as, and that is the definition of a breakout character if there's ever been one. It's Steve Urkel. If you look that up in the dictionary, uh, the TV tropes dictionary, as it were, then you would see a picture, I think, of of Steve Urkel. You should anyway. And, you know, you would know exactly what show they were talking about, even though they just called it Urkel, because he was the show pretty much. And he was just like an ancillary character. He wasn't even in the family. He was out of the family. He was their neighbor, and they didn't even really like him. He was just annoying. He would just annoy. He would just hit on Laura, the t- the family's daughter. He would kind of get on Eddie's nerves because he didn't really fit in with his friends. And he'd always get on Carl, the dad's nerves. Uh, every time he came over, he'd get into some kind of trouble with Carl and so it wasn't like Urkel was this like beloved family friend. It was really like they didn't like him at all, but everyone watching the show loved him so much, and Jaleel White was so good in the role that it just took off, and it made the show a huge hit, and it made him this kind of character that you couldn't have an episode without Urkel. Like It just was would be unheard of in later seasons of the show. The show, though, did have this terrific ensemble cast. It wasn't just all about Urkel and Jaleel White. All, the Almost the entire cast... And the entire principal cast was made up of black actors of various ages. It was like an all-black cast for the show, and it was a big cast, not a small cast. Reginald Vell Johnson, who played Carl, you might remember him as the uh, cop from Die Hard, and then, of course, he plays a cop in Family Matters, so it was like this joke that all, Reginald Vell Johnson could only play a cop. Like, that's the only thing he, he could play. He just had the look of... And he did. He looked like, you know, kind of this fat, schlubby cop like that's really and he was very good at it he had this great voice great delivery really authoritative and uh funny too and he was really funny in family matters always the foil to uh to uh steve urkel joe marie payton was in the cast she played harriet uh carl's wife and the the mother of the family rosetta lenore played the mother uh the grandmother i should say um she they called her mother she was like the you know the the old head in the house and uh she was great also darius mccrary and kelly williams played the kids eddie and laura and then you know there were more actors from there but those were really the principal players And it was such a good cast. It was just like pretty much the whole series was just a weekly look at what was going on in, you know, the Winslow family's lives. And there was very little carryover from episode to episode. So it made Family Matters this dream series for syndicated viewing. Those shows have almost completely gone by the wayside now, they still exist. You'll still see them on some networks, uh, but they're not really, you know, they, they don't get any buzz. They don't get talked about at all. Uh, but Family Matters was a great example of this kind of show that dominated the 70s, the 80s, and even into the 90s and became the, these million-dollar, you know, money makers. I'm talking yearly for, like, the people that created them for all time because they would just get so much money in syndication and 
this was, I mean, this is like a money press basically when you create a series like this, because it just has a, a life that never ends. And then when DVDs came out and people bought the show on DVD again, the life continued. And I mean, if you were like a, a television creator and you created a, a sitcom in the seventies, eighties, nineties, you would never have to work again. I mean, like your work was done. If it was a hit show, forget it. You were going to be rich forever because the, sh- the show was just going to continue airing somewhere around the world uh, forever for the rest of your entire life. Um, the theme song for the show, though, that's what we're here to talk about. The theme song for Family Matters was called As Days Go By, and it was written and performed by the legendary composer and performer and theme song impresario Jesse Frederick. And I only call Frederick legendary. You might think I'm overstepping my bounds by calling this guy who sings theme songs legendary, but this guy wrote and performed the theme songs for four different classic ABC sitcoms of the same era that Family Matters was on. So at one time, he had done the theme songs for four huge shows that were on every week on network television to millions of viewers across the United States. He wrote the theme songs and performed them. For Full House, Step by Step, and Perfect Strangers, just to name a few, and as as well as Family Matters. So all these shows are on at the same time. They're all the same kind of show. So if you were watching any of them, you were hearing Jesse Frederick every single week. And who doesn't remember the theme song to Full House? I mean, that's another one of the all-time classics. That was the same guy. Does anybody else also remember Step by Step with that roller coaster in the opening and Suzanne Somers, who I would probably call like the original MILF, playing that role uh, on that show? Anybody else remember it? Just me? Okay. Anyway, Jesse Frederick, though, he had that kind of scratchy voice that was his signature, and he just spun gold for years at ABC. And this was probably, to me, this was his magnum opus. This was his best. I think it's better than the Full House theme. I'll put Family Matters above it. The song's lyrics are just this idealistic look at family and the love that comes from family. And I do love, though, this song. Uh, I'd love using it to point out kind of to old people who are always complaining about bad news. News, because I've worked in news for a long time, and it's always, why don't you guys write out about anything good? Why do you always write bad stories? And I like to point out that this is not a new development. Like the news media has kind of always, there's a reason the phrase, if it bleeds, it leads has been around since television news has kind of been on the air because people, those are the shows that draw, those are the stories that draw eyeballs. People act like they want to read good news, but they don't. But anyway, I like to use this song to point out to older people that news publishers did not just start focusing on grim news in the online age because the first lyric of the song, Jesse Frederick sings, it's a rare condition in this day and age to read any good news on the newspaper page. Great rhyme, also prophetic of what the news industry would be and would become even more so in the years that would follow. That one line is about as dire as Family Matters ever got. Here's something I found out when I was researching this segment. Did you know that the this song was not the original theme song for Family Matters and they didn't even use the song for its full run? I had no clue about this. All I remember is this song. Every time I watched, and I watched a lot of episodes of Family Matters over the years and reruns, I would just watch it every time it was on. I loved this show. One of, Truly one of my favorite shows as a kid. I, I loved every single episode I watched of it. I had no clue 
until reading into this that they actually used Louis Armstrong's classic song, What a Wonderful World, as the theme for the first few episodes of Family Matters. So like the first five episodes of the show's on the air, the theme song that it opened with was What a Wonderful World by Louis Armstrong. You know that song. Everybody knows that song. It's been you know beaten to death over the decades since it's been out. But they ended up scrapping that for this song, which I think was a great call. No disrespect to Louis Armstrong, but, you know, that song is just, it's kind of plodding, right? It doesn't really get you excited to watch a TV series. It's not going to bring you to the screen. It's going to probably make you want to go to sleep or go outside or something like that. And that song is just so saccharine that it's almost impossible to take it as anything but satire these days. Like, when I hear that song, I just think of it as being kind of satirical or a parody. I don't think of it as being sincere because we've become so jaded. It's impossible for someone to to sing lyrics like that, like what a wonderful world and really mean them. Like he has to be kidding, right? He has to be saying that the world sucks. He can't really be saying it's a wonderful world, but he was, he was sincere. I mean, Louis Armstrong was a dead serious song and it wasn't meant as a joke. So it's hard to hear that song and take it seriously. So I just don't think that would have worked at all as a theme song for as good and beloved as a song that is, I think they made absolutely the right decision in switching to this as days go by as the theme. But I also did not know that they switched. Um, they switched it to as days go by, and they only used this song for the first seven seasons of the show before getting rid of the opening title sequence altogether for the last two-plus seasons of the series. So they just skipped the song altogether in the last few years of the show. I didn't know that either. Family Matters celebrates its 30th birthday this September, and that almost brings a tear to my eye because for me, you know, this was pretty much my entire childhood was watching Family Matters. I, it was there for me. It ran from 1989 to 1998. I was born in 1988. So for the first, you know, 10, 11 years of my life, this show is on the air. And then it was running in reruns after that. And those are perfect years to watch a show like this because, you know, once I became a teen, I was not going to be interested in a show that was this sweet and this basic. Uh, but when I was, you know, those kind of those years, seven, eight, nine, ten, those this are perfect years for a show like this for you to watch it. So it was just on at a perfect time for me. And it was just a different world for me because it was set in Chicago. It was a show about, you know, living in a city. And this really nice big family with no problems that were real problems, you know, which was something that I didn't know much about either at that point in my life. And it was a black family. And I didn't know we didn't have black people living in the small town I grew up in. I mean, seriously, there were almost no black people, no brown people even. There were the people that, you know, owned and ran the Chinese restaurant, but those were about as, you know, non-white as anyone that I saw growing up. So it was just a, a window in kind of a different world, and it was it was really cool. It was just something special, and it was one of my favorites of that time. I loved watching it every single time it was on. Um, the show ran, as I said, it ran from 1989 to 1997 on ABC, and then it actually switched networks and went to CBS for one season from 97 to 98, uh, before finally calling it quits. Overall, Family Matters ended up airing 215 episodes over the span of nine seasons, uh, making it one of the longest-running series ever, especially one with uh, a predominantly black cast. It's one of the absolute—it didn't run quite as long as the Jeffersons, 
Uh, but it's right up there with the longest running shows with predominantly black casts. Um, and was even a groundbreaker for, you know, for that in the 1980s, as sad as that sounds. But anyway, it's theme song, As Days Go By by Jesse Frederick, is our pick for the greatest TV show theme song of all time this week. A stone-cold classic, Family Matters. Don't you know and love that song? How could you not, man? Just the opening. Every time I hear it, it just kind of takes me back. Wanted to give you a quick update on what I am watching now because there's a lot of it that I'm kind of juggling, and I'll be talking about it. I don't like to talk about anything on the show that I'm in the middle of watching. I always, since the beginning of the series, I like to talk about things you know, that once a show is ended, once a season is ended anyway, because I just don't, it's it's hard to talk about something that's in the middle of the story. You know, it's like stopping a movie midway through and then I'm going to give you my review of this movie. I don't understand why some places do that. I mean, I, I get why they do it. They have to do it because, you know, you can't just wait until ends of seasons to publish reviews of things uh, because the buzz is kind of worn off. But luckily for us, we don't care about that. So what I'm watching now, though, AGT is back on. So I'm watching that. I'm getting my summer junk food in. As you know, I've talked about it in seasons past here on the Stream Police, that that is kind of my go-to, uh, you know, like junkie. That's the only reality show that I watch, America's Got Talent. So that's back on for the year. So Beth and I are watching that again. I uh, also have been working my way slowly through a few different series. I've been watching Deadwood. Uh, Beth and I have been watching that. So that one, we're kind of slowly making our way through. I should, we'll probably be done with that in the next month, I'd say. So maybe next month's episode, I'll finally give you my thoughts on Deadwood because I waited for a long time to watch that series and I'm finally finally watching it. The Shield uh, on FX, I've been watching that for a couple months now. I'm getting toward the end of it now. I'm over the halfway point on that series. So I'll give you my thoughts on that coming up in a bit. And also Cowboy Bebop, I'm watching that for the first time ever. Uh, the anime classic, it's the first anime series that I've um watched all the way through from start to finish so this is kind of a new thing for me and i will give you my thoughts on it as well so far though i've been really enjoying all three of them a lot surprise surprise three shows with really excellent reputations and they've have lived up to them i would say another show with an excellent reputation that i finally got around to watching uh, that i wanted to talk to you about is hbo's the night of i had never watched this show i finished it a couple months ago it was a very quick watch this is a um what you would you know call more of a mini series than a than actual series uh because it only has aired one season so far of eight episodes and it tells an entire story from start to finish with no need for revisiting we don't need to go back and see what these characters are up to this is kind of this is a fully enclosed story and some shows just work better that way and this is one of those great examples of a a modern miniseries that was done really well in just eight episodes so the night of if you never saw it uh, this was a show that aired in 2016 on hbo it was the uh, summer of 2016 it was like i said an eight episode deal and then it was over and the show was about uh, at its you know most basic this is one of those murder mystery shows where we see in the first episode we see a uh, young woman gets brutally stabbed to death like stabbed you know a, a bunch of times it's very bloody and we just see her body and what has happened and we see kind of the events leading up to it she was out you know with this guy that she had just met 
um, this young Pakistani American guy, and uh, he's driving a cab for whatever reason. It's not his own cab; it's his dad's cab uh, that he has stolen for the night so that he can get into the uh, get into New York City and go to a party because he lives just outside the city. So these you know events have led them together, and then suddenly we see her end, ending up dead, him waking up after blacking out after a night of drinking and doing drugs with her, um, and everything kind of spirals from there. So we're not sure what happened to her, but it doesn't look good for this guy whose name is Nas. Um, and the show is kind of at its most basic, a murder mystery of did he do it or did he not do it? It's a thing we've seen done a million times on different shows. We've seen it done. Well, we've seen it kind of done hackneyed. Uh, and it's really become a big, very popular genre, especially these days. Those kind of, those shows are, are very hot. Those investigative murder mystery kind of shows. And this one, goes beyond what a lot of them do because it has more of a message to it. And it's it's more of a character show, I think, than it is a, a pure murder mystery. Usually on these shows, the characters are just like in Agatha Christie's books. Like she was the master of this kind of plot. She basically, she didn't invent it, but she pretty much made it the industry that it is today. And she was a master of writing these kinds of plots, but she was not a master. And I think anyone who's read her stuff, I've read a couple of her books, and anyone who's an expert even on Christie will tell you that she wasn't a master of character. She didn't really give you deep. All her characters were pretty surfacey, pretty flat, and they were really just objects to move along. They were like chess pieces for her, the chess master, to move along in getting to that ultimate satisfying reveal of who did it. Uh, but this is one of those where it's more about like you really get to know the characters. You get deep into what who they are, what makes them tick, at least two of the characters which is more than you can say about a lot of murder mysteries. I found this show to be really gripping. I've watched a lot of shows set in the legal system, and this one is much more about lawyers than it is about cops. Um, and it's much more about, um, you know, suspects than it is necessarily about detectives, um, which made it all kind of feel a little bit more fresh. And the whole thing really felt fresh, and it felt very lived in. Uh, that's, to me, the best description of the night of. I would say it's lived in. It all feels very worn in. There's nothing glamorous at all to be found here. If you if you like your cops to be handsome, if you like your lawyers to be hot shots, if you like the suspects in the show to be kind of mysterious and sexy, that's not what's happening in the night of. It's not that kind of show at all. It is not sexy whatsoever. The lead character... And I think it can be argued who's the lead character here, but I would say typically in these shows, the lead character is the lawyer. It's not the suspect usually. In this case, I would probably argue that the suspect is the lead character and the lawyer is is the supporting character. But we're going to say that John Chaturro, who plays this attorney named John Stone, um, we're going to call him the lead character. And he is arguably one of the least glamorous characters that I have ever seen be the star of a TV show. This character just could not be more like repellent in all the traditional ways uh, that you think of a TV leading character. He's got this awful skin problem on his feet that makes him wrap his feet in saran wrap and wear open sandals, and he reaches down and scratches his feet with chopsticks all the time. He's constantly going to doctor's appointments trying to find holistic medicine that'll cure this foot problem. It's it's awful. It's totally... And he's not, you know, I mean, it's John Chaturro. He's not a, like, traditionally handsome kind of guy. He usually has made his career playing weirdos and this character is not a weirdo he this is one of the most down-to-earth characters that Chaturo has been able to play 
and he plays him brilliantly. Um, but it's not the kind of character that you would typically think this is going to be the lead of a TV series. He's just not magnetizing at all. He's totally kind of a repellent guy, but he's a very interesting guy. And it's somebody that you end up rooting for um, because he's kind of like the lawyer. Did you ever see the movie The Verdict, the Lumet, the Sidney Lumet movie? Great movie. Paul Newman plays this lawyer who's old and at the end of his career, and he's never really been a lawyer who's done any meaningful cases. He's just kind of been one of those ambulance-chasing kind of guys who has just opted to make money rather than, and he hasn't even made a ton of money, but rather than do meaningful cases, he's just done kind of easy stuff his entire career. And so he finally sets out to do this, to take on one big trial. And that's what happens in the night of John Stone is not this hot shot lawyer by any means. He's kind of one of those guys who you see his face on the side of a bus and it's like, I don't get paid unless you do. He's one of those sleazy TV lawyers like uh, Denzel Washington in Philadelphia. He's that kind of guy. And of course he gets this big case that he finally wants to do something that's meaningful and no one takes him seriously. So that's the archetype of this character that is the main attorney in the night of. Meanwhile, the suspect is played by Reese Ahmed. And as I said, he's this young Pakistani American guy, uh, early twenties. I would say his name is Nas Nasir. Um, he goes by Nas and he's really the lead though, through the whole series, because the whole show is driven by whether or not Nas is guilty or innocent. And also about kind of the awful changes that his character goes through just simply by being put through the legal system, not even by, did he commit the crime or not? But the changes that he goes through just for going through the ringer of being in the legal system that is the American justice system. And it is tough. It's rough, man, especially if you're on trial for murder, because it's going to take you a long time to get through. This isn't a slow or this isn't a fast process. This is very slow. So this show is as much a murder mystery as it is about kind of incarceration and what it can do to a person that isn't a violent person going in. And does it make them violent coming out? And it's, this is a, a guy who's got a positive outlook on life before he goes into the system. And then what's going to happen to him once he comes out? Because it's very hard to maintain a positive outlook on life once you've been, you know, in prison, once you've been in uh, uh, on the inside. So that's kind of what this show is more about than did he do it or not. But of course, the mystery of did he do it or not is one of the things that keeps you kind of glued into each episode as we peel away the mystery of what happened on the night of, which obviously is the title of the show. Um, it's kind of like, did you ever see, if you ever watched Oz, and I've told you before, it's one of my favorite series ever. If you remember the character of Tobias Beecher, what happens to Riz Ahmed's character Nas is is kind of like a smaller scale, much smaller scale version of what happens to Tobias Beecher on Oz, who becomes just this guy that his family would not recognize at all uh, when seeing him after he's been on the inside. You know, he goes in as this smart uh, attorney with some personal problems and comes out completely unrecognizable in the end. So watching the way that Nas is forced to change uh, to survive on the inside is the toughest thing about watching the night of just seeing the things that this bright young man has to go through to make it out in one piece uh, is the is the best thing. The night of is definitely a prison show. I, that's something I didn't know going in. I thought it was more of a courtroom show. It's more of a prison show than it is a courtroom show. I would say it's maybe 50 50, but it is a lot. There's a lot of time spent on the inside and seeing the things that he has to go through to survive in there. Meanwhile, 
you're legitimately wondering the whole time whether or not he's guilty of killing this woman because his story is not very good and it certainly makes him look guilty. And he could be. That's one of the things that keeps you coming back. Meanwhile, uh, the third other major player, I would say, in the series is this actor named Bill Camp, who's more of a character actor. But man, I got to tell you, of all the three lead actors there, Bill Camp is the guy that drew me in more even than John Chaturro and Riz Ahmed, who did great jobs in their roles. Camp plays this detective who has this impeccable reputation, you know, among other detectives, and he's shown to be a very good cop. He's not like the cop that you would expect to see in a show these days on TV. He's a he's a good cop. He might bend the lines a little bit. He knows how to he knows how to play the system, but he always stays in the lines of he doesn't do things that are illegal. He's not shown doing things that are sleazy or things that would make you think that he's evil. He's just a kind of a straightforward detective who's very good at his job. He knows what to look for. He knows uh, where to look for it. And he knows how to do it in the system that wouldn't mess up his case uh, with the technicality. It's just fun to get to watch a great actor play a strong character like this, breathing life into really every movement that he makes and making it really feel like every line of dialogue uh, really counts for something. And that's what Detective Box, who's the character that Bill Camp plays, I just was was totally drawn to him every time he's on screen. I could not take my eyes off of uh, Bill Camp in this role. And really all he is is he's just a middle-aged kind of schlubby detective dude with nothing flashy about him at all. This is not like a hotshot detective. As I said, no one on this show is a hotshot. You can't describe anyone as a hotshot. It's all like these people who are on the margins of the legal system, and they're the ones that are at the center of this series, and I think it's what made The Night Of so refreshing and so interesting. And In the end, I really loved the whole thing. It had this great mystery. So if you're into mysteries, give it a watch just for that. But it had these smart things to say about our legal system and the way that we treat Americans who aren't white or black, because this show kind of points that out. I mean, white and black Americans and obviously black Americans are not treated, haven't been treated, you know, the the same as white Americans for the entirety of, of since this country has existed and even before that. Uh, But we don't always talk about people who aren't white or black. Um, And this show is kind of about those people. You can call them brown people or whatever, but Still, Americans that aren't white and aren't black. Um, and this show is, is all about that. And how do we treat those people? And especially since 9-11 and, and in New York City, uh, a guy who is a Pakistani-American is not going to be treated very well at all. And, and that's kind of what happens here. But I also didn't think the show was so obvious with the things that happen. Like, it doesn't follow the, the patterns that you would expect if I gave you that as the pitch to the show. It doesn't have those scenes that you expect to see just because this is a show post-9-11 in New York about, you know, a, uh, a Muslim American and he's accused of killing a white girl. So it, it doesn't go the way that you think it, it's always going to go. It avoids the cliches that these shows usually fall into, and that really did keep me guessing as to what the roles of each character were going to be as the show went forward. It's not all straightforward. It's not all obvious. Uh, This was a rare one where I actually would have liked more episodes. Usually you hear me on this show say, if only they could have cut down the number of episodes. And I've, I've said many times that I think eight episodes to 10 episodes is a perfect length for pretty much any story. You can, if you can't tell a, a story in eight to 10 episodes in a season, I should say a season arc if you can't tell in that many story in that many episodes, then you know how good of a story really is it. But this is one where I actually would have liked to have seen more episodes. I think twelve probably could have been even richer. Um, 
as far as because these characters were so interesting and we could have gotten even deeper into characters like Detective Box if we had had more episodes than we did in just the eight episodes that this show is. But this was really more like a great book uh, than a TV series. So if you like that kind of thing, if you're looking for something to watch in the course of a, a week, a couple weekends, whatever, The Night Of is, is a perfect pick for that, especially if you like a murder mystery and if you like cop shows and if you like you know stuff that in, is in, in the legal system, in the courtroom, check out The Night Of. I think you'll really end up digging it, uh, especially ones that have social messages. This one definitely has that as well, but it doesn't beat you over the head with it, so don't uh, – you know, get get worried about that. This is one of those preachy series, but it's something that gives you something to chew on and think about after it's over, which is rare uh, when it comes to television. Television's long been knocked as something that is uh, that rots your brain, is what they used to say. But this is not one of those shows that does that. You can learn something from this one and definitely have something to think about and talk about after it's over. The pilot episode in particular, I, I thought was so masterfully done. This is one of the best pilot episodes I've seen in a long time. It felt like a whole film. Because it was a long episode. I think it was like an hour and 20 minutes. And it's very long. And it, it feels like a movie. And it feels like a good movie. Um, and it was so tense throughout. And it gave us basically an hour and some change just to focus on who would turn out to be the main character of the show. And that would be Nas. Uh, almost the entire first episode follows Nas. Uh, and it happens on the night of. That's really what happens on the first episode of the series. And sets us up for this mystery and what would unfold uh, for the rest of the show. Fascinating show. Very well done. Um, top shelf murder mystery police uh, courtroom series. And uh, it's all on HBO now right now if you want to stream it. All eight episodes are there for you to watch. It's the night of. You ask you how it happened? You didn't? Doesn't surprise me. Makes no difference to him. Or to his job. And you are a job to him, Naz. Make no mistake. He's going to make money off this. Your parents' money. The longer it takes, the more he makes. And they can't afford that, can they? You know where he is right now? Downstairs drinking coffee with the detectives, breaking each other's balls. Because the fact is, it's a big club, the criminal justice system. We can't exist without each other. We know it. But I'm not a member of that club. I don't like the idea of a double life. My job is to get to the truth, so I don't see why I should socialize with anyone trying to stop me from doing that. That's why I'm up here with you, instead of drinking coffee down there with him. You shouldn't be doing this, should you? What? Talking to me without him here. You know, I really love what I do, Nuss. But every once in a while, I get frustrated. I abide by the rules, though, I do. So, yeah, that's right. You don't have to talk to me unless you want to. And now to shift gears 100%. And now for something completely different. I want to talk about a, a comedy series that I recently watched all the way through. I have to say it's rare that I ever watch an entire series between episodes of this podcast, but I did that since the last time we spoke, I started and finished an entire series that I had not seen before, and that was this BBC show called Miranda. And this was a show I hadn't even heard of, and since I've asked some other people about it, uh, if they had seen it, I've realized that a lot of people, at least Americans, had not heard of this show, apparently. It went under my radar. It went under a lot of people's radar. I actually have to give my mother-in-law credit for um, getting Beth and I to watch this show, and 
I'm always, you know, skeptical to watch a comedy series. Just am. I don't know. Call me a snob, whatever. I've said it before on this show. I am a snob. I have become one just from the things that I've watched over the years and the things I've learned over the years about watching movies and watching television. I, you just become a snob. It's impossible not to uh, when you take that the viewing or listening or whatever it is that you're into when you take it really seriously. You become a snob, not just somebody who you know, watches things for fun or just to turn it on in the background or something like that. It, it just makes you into a snob, I think. So this was like, it, it's a half hour sitcom, but it's British. And those shows, usually the British series that I have watched over the years, be it The Office or be it The Inbetweeners or, you know, s- many others, I've almost always enjoyed them. They're just really funny. They're really well done. They just know how to pack a punch in such a short number of episodes. And this one is very, very short. Three seasons in total, 20 episodes in total. Um, And it ran from 2009 to 2015. So over the span of kind of a long time, this show called Miranda did run. And if you want to watch it, it's streaming right now on Hulu and on Amazon Prime. But basically, all it's about, it's a half-hour sitcom about this single woman named Miranda who's in her mid-30s and she runs her own business. She runs this little shop in England uh, with her best friend and the character is constantly just disappointing her mother. Even though she runs a business, she's basically you know totally independent. She has her own apartment, all this stuff. But she's a complete disappointment to her mother because all her mother wants is for her daughter to be married and probably to you know, have children and all that kind of stuff. She just wants like the traditional female role kind of things uh she that's all she wants her daughter miranda is her only kid and the mother is hilarious in the show she's played uh by patricia hodge who's this veteran character actor in britain uh you might recognize her if you looked her up but also the other cast members of the show are so good sarah hadlin plays the friend that runs the joke shop with miranda uh sally phillips is in it as well she was really funny on veep which i talked about last uh, last episode of the stream police. Um, she had this small role on Veep, but was one of the funniest kind of supporting characters of the, of the series. And there were a lot of funny ones on there, but I really remember Sally Phillips a lot. Also, Tom Ellis is kind of the love interest of Miranda in the show. He plays a guy named Gary, who's a chef who's been friends with her for a long time. And they've kind of had a, a will they or won't they kind of relationship their whole lives. And uh, you might know Tom Ellis, if you ever saw the show Lucifer, which was on Fox for a few seasons, uh, before I think going to Netflix or something like that. I don't know. It was one of those shows that changed networks in the last few years. But Tom Ellis is, this was kind of what he was on before he was ended up being the main character in Lucifer. So it's kind of fun. If you if you like Lucifer, then you probably will like seeing him here. Although I thought he was kind of the weak uh, link of the series, uh, to be honest, as far as the actors go. I thought he was kind of the least funny of everyone in the show. But Miranda Hart is the heart and soul, no pun intended, of the series. She's the one that it plays Miranda. Obviously, it's kind of semi-autobiographical and all that stuff. Uh, but Miranda Hart, you might remember if you ever saw the movie Spy, she was really funny in that. She played uh, kind of the uh, the friend, I guess, like really the only friend that Melissa McCarthy's main character had in this in the show they both worked uh, at the cia and they were kind of misfits there um and miranda hart was really funny in that movie just a small part that she had but she's very funny in this series i'm like really really funny and she carries pretty much the entire series from top to bottom and she's really good and i can't i don't really tell you a whole lot i mean this isn't one of those deep this is not like the night of this is not something that's going to give you a bunch to uh 
to chew on after it's over. I mean, it's pretty much just you watch it and then you kind of move on. But it is really funny, and I laughed a lot at every episode. So if, it, if you want a show like that that you can watch in a breeze, you can breeze through it. And it's one of those shows that's kind of about adult relationships, but not really because it's a very silly show. It's a very British uh, series, and it's very kind of flight of fancy and funny and just wacky, totally wacky. But really, really funny, and it really did make me laugh a lot. Uh, Miranda is one that I would recommend for you because it's just very funny. And watching Miranda Hart is is uh, just a joy. She's hilarious, and I want to see her do more things. I want to. I would like to see her carry a film uh, at some point. But this is a uh, was a really good project for her. it. Was a big hit in Britain on BBC for three seasons, and like I said, it ran for twenty total episodes. I would honestly. If I'm being totally honest with you, I loved the whole thing up until the final. There are two episodes they aired that were aired as specials that act kind of as the series finale. And I think you can skip those, honestly, because they're not very funny at all. The show almost turns dramatic in those two episodes. It's jarring the change in style. And also the look is completely different because it's like in super like 4K high definition by that point. So it just looks very different. Everyone kind of looks different by the time those final two episodes aired because it was so many years. I mean, there are years between the finish of the third season and then these final two specials, which are kind of, I guess, a fourth season, but it's only two episodes. It's kind of confusing to explain. But if you end, if you just finish the thir- the three seasons, it ends on a cliffhanger. I think you're fine. Like, you can just end it there, move on with your life, and you'll feel like you watched a better show than if you see those final two episodes my mother-in-law disagreed with me when i told her uh that 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 would be my idea for telling people to watch this show uh but i don't think you need to watch those final two episodes uh i just didn't think they were very funny and they were totally different from what made the show very really good to begin with um and just went places that i don't think the series needed to go and i don't think that cliffhanger needed to be resolved so If I'm recommending that you watch Miranda, and I am, if you're looking for a new comedy to watch, especially if you like British shows, if you like British humor, um, give this show a watch. But honestly, just watch the first three seasons and skip the final two specials because you're not missing anything. You're only missing bad stuff, really. And I think if you watch them, you're going to agree with me 100%. But anyway, Miranda, totally recommend this show. Really funny. Different kind of series for me to recommend on this show. I don't recommend enough comedies. I know I don't. Um, And this is one that I think did get acclaim in Britain, but just hasn't been talked about a whole lot uh, in America. I hadn't read a lot about it anyway. And uh, all three seasons of it, all 20 episodes of it, are streaming right now on uh, Hulu and on Amazon Prime. And as I said, the show originally ran from 2009 to 2015 so it was stretched out over a number of years which is how the the brits like to do it with their series um but uh, it's really it's fun to just sit and binge through because you can easily watch several episodes at a time and not get weighed down at all because it's just a very light and funny uh really really funny show so i'm recommending miranda for you if you're looking for something kind of funny and light to watch right now on hulu and on amazon prime if you don't cancel my membership i i'm going to uh... I, I will, I will shit all over your towels. We'll just wash them. Fine, okay. Well, I'll tell you what I'm going to do then. I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to break your swimming pool. How? I'll tell you how. The idea's just forming in my head. <laughs> I will usher in a mass of dirty dogs. Dogs? Yes, dogs. And I will... 
I have no idea where I'm going with this. Okay, like I said, Andy is not joining us uh, this month. Uh, still just locked in his room, listening to Western Stars. It's all he's been doing for the last month. I don't know how to get him out of there. Uh, but I'm going to take a break anyway, take a breather here, puff my stogie for a minute, and uh, then I'm going to come right back. And if you thought you were going to not get five songs added to the playlist, the never-ending playlist, then you were wrong, my friend. I'll give you my five picks and also tell you about uh, the movie that scarred me for life coming up here in just a few minutes. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. All right, I took a couple puffs of the stick. Good to go again. Hope you're enjoying the ride. Usually in the second half of the show, if this is your first time on the stream, police, I usually talk about uh, I talk about movies more in the second half, and usually it's television up in the first half there. Um, and Andy in the middle does a segment where he talks about music. Usually he does more of like a column on something like some kind of issue in music or some kind of trend in music or something like that. And then he always ends his segment by giving you five more songs added on to our never-ending, as he calls it, perfect playlist. And you can find this playlist on Spotify. You can subscribe to it and uh, just listen to all the songs that have been added over the years. There's, a, there's hundreds of songs in there now. Uh, he's been doing five every week for, I don't even remember which episode he first started to do that on, uh, but he's been doing it for a long time. And uh, the playlist, if you just search Stream Police, it should come up right away. It's the Stream Police Five Songs playlist is what the name of the playlist is on Spotify. So search Stream Police and uh, you should see it right there uh, ready for you. Okay, so I'm going to give you five more songs added onto the playlist since uh, Andy is uh, indisposed this month. All right, so first off, I'm going to start you off with one uh, since, you know what, we just had the holiday and I any excuse I can to play this song, I'm going to play it for you. It's just one of those rockers that you have to crank all the way up uh, every time it comes on put the windows down and all that stuff. It's 4th of July by X. On the
love that tune. First time I ever heard that was in an episode of The Sopranos. I had never heard that song before. And do you have any of those bands where you, like, there's a song by them you love, and then so you're like, man, I got to find out what else this band has done, and you listen to it, and you, you're you like, what the fuck? Like, you hate everything else that the band has done except for that one song. That's how X was for me. They're like this L.A. punk band. Uh, very like hard punk band and i listened to some of their stuff like their classic albums and just really did not get into it at all didn't like it very much um they were featured in that documentary the uh, decline of western civilization which is a really good movie i do like that movie a lot but i just didn't really like x's music very much but fourth of july just out of nowhere totally like doesn't sound like any of their other songs and i happen to just love it i wish they would have done more that sounded like this just for me all right, number two of the five songs I'm giving you this month. How about one I've been listening to a lot lately? It just gets stuck in my head every time I hear it. It's a newer song, just came out this year. It's called Bottle It Up by Jade Jackson. just one of those tunes that has a great uh, chorus to it that you have to sing along with. Uh, again, good like kind of barroom rock, country rocker kind of deal. And uh, pretty much all the songs I'm going to hit you with this month are are country songs, at least uh, inspired by country songs. I'm going to give you one from Waylon Jennings now. How about Rainy Day Woman? Maybe my favorite song ever by Waylon. Gotta love that one. That's another one that gets stuck in my head for days every time I hear it. And while we're doing Rainy Day Woman, why don't I just give you one from Bob Dylan? How about Rainy Day Women, number 12 and 35, an all-time classic? They stone you when you're trying to go home. They'll stone you when you're there all alone. Most people don't really call it Rainy Day Women number 12 and 35. Mostly people mostly people call it the uh, Everybody Must Get Stoned song. That's t- typically what it's referred to as. And finally, for my fifth song, I'm going to give you on the playlist, Submitted for Your Approval, another one of those that you just have to crank up every time it comes on and you're cruising down the highway, Shoe Shine Man by Tom T. Hall. Well, I can sing, I can dance, I can play the harmonica too. I got a brand new thing called the South Side of Montgomery Blues. You better stick around and watch me, cause I'm an entertaining fool. I'm a shoe shine man, the number one in the land. A shoe shine man, make you shine where you stand. Leave me a tip if you can, I'm a shoe shine man. 
the shoe shine man number one in the land. That's one guy that didn't mind if you told him to go get his, uh, well, his shine box. All right, so there you go. Hopefully Andy approves of those five songs. If not, tough. They're on the playlist now, and once they're on the playlist, they can never come off the playlist. A court order couldn't pull them off the playlist. And search for it on Spotify. It's the Stream Police Five Songs playlist, and there are way more than five songs on there. All right, uh, shifting gears into movies, I want to tell you about uh, Beth and I had a chance to go to the movies here uh, recently, just around her birthday, which is in early July. And we went on a rare, you know, like night out to the theaters these days since Emerson has been born. And we picked out a movie directed by a guy um, that we both really liked his first movie. His first film, the, the director's name is Ari Aster. And he, the first movie he did came out last year. It was called Hereditary. And if you remember my countdown of my favorite movies of 2018 hereditary was actually number one on my list i thought it was the best movie of the entire year 2018 it just to me i called it i think it was the scariest movie that i've ever seen it was right up there like the absolute scariest movies i've ever seen like uh record and rosemary's baby the ones that really just get under my skin and scare me more than a lot of the other ones that just you know try to shock you Hereditary really, really scared me deeply. I thought it was just completely um, creepy. It had a great story. It was more like almost just a family drama than a horror movie. You almost wouldn't even have known it was a horror movie if you just watched the first, you know, 45 minutes of it and you left the theater. You wouldn't even have realized that it turned into a horror movie. Uh, So it was just a brilliant movie. I loved it from top to bottom. So Aster came out with another movie already. So, like, within a year, he's put out two movies, which I respect a lot. I wish more guys did that. This one is called Midsummer, and we read about it. We got it recommended to us by a friend of ours who has great taste in movies. I've always loved to talk about movies to him named John. And uh, John was like, you got to let me know when you see Midsummer because I went to see it with a group of friends. He said he went and saw it with, uh, I think it was with three other friends. And he's like, two of us hated it, two of us loved it. I'm not going to tell you which one I was. So... Immediately I'm intrigued, and then I looked into it, and I didn't even realize that Ari Aster had done it, but as soon as I read his name was uh, attached to it, it was like, yeah, I'm definitely going to go see this movie because I thought Hereditary was just as good as horror has ever been. So this movie is about a, a group of friends of, of like graduate students, so we're talking mid-20s Americans here, who decide to go off with one of their friends that they've known for about a year, uh, who is uh, Swedish, and they go with him over the summer to a festival that his family, that you know, where he's come from in this small village in Sweden, this festival that they throw, big grand festival, and and a lot of the the friends in this group are anthropology students, um, stuff like that. They're into you know, they're into cultural history and everything. So it's too tantalizing. They can't turn it down. Who who would turn down, you know, a little trip to Sweden with your friends. So they go out to this festival and, you know, safe to say, I'm not spoiling too much, but it turns into an absolute nightmare from there for everyone pretty much involved in this thing uh, from the beginning. So, and among the group, it's a group of, uh, I think four guys, four very annoying kind of typical horror movie douchebag guys you know the type type of characters that you don't mind seeing at the end of jason Voorhees knife you know that's kind of why they're there they're just they're just dicks that's the whole point point. and then 
in the middle of the group is one of the guy's girlfriends who is the actually the main character of the movie. She's played by Florence Pugh. Um, and she is, has just gone through this horrific tragedy that unfolds for us in the first like 15 minutes of the movie. And it's, that's one of the best parts of the movie. The opening of this film it was just completely devastating. It reminded me of the movie up because it's like its own movie just in the first 15 minutes. And then it goes on to something completely different from there. Um, and the rest of it may not even be as effective as what happened in the opening minutes. But anyway, so she goes along with them. None of the guys really like her that much. Her boyfriend's even been like, he wants to dump her. Um, but so she goes along with him. She's like this total doormat kind of, you know, just no confidence, no, no power of, of herself. Um, and, and, and she goes along with them because again, who could turn this down? So, like I said, the whole thing turns into a nightmare from there. I don't want to tell you anything specifically that happens, but it's it doesn't go in a way that you probably think if I explain that setup to you. It doesn't go in a way that you think it's going to. Um, and I just have to say, this movie, again, it's called Midsummer. It really, really disturbed me, more probably than any movie that I've ever seen. And I'm not trying to just use hyperbole there. I've had a, a little bit of time to think about this now since we went and saw it. And I really haven't been able to stop thinking about this movie. And especially for several days after it was over, uh, I was really just, again, totally bothered by what I had seen in this movie and the way that, especially the way the movie had treated death. I just thought the way that Astor in this movie treats death and the way his characters treat death is so chilling and just so kind of off kilter, but normal enough to where it doesn't feel like you're wacky, watching a wacky horror movie. You know what I'm saying? You're watching like it feels dramatic enough, almost like documentary enough where you feel like this could be a real thing. Um, But I slept like shit the night that I saw it. And that's really rare for me. I watch a lot of horror movies. I've talked to you on this show about horror movies a lot over the years. And I did a segment a couple months ago on the most like. I think I can't remember what I called it. Was it the most disturbing movies I've ever seen or the most extreme cinema, extreme movies that I've ever seen? And I talked about the movies I've watched, like Faces of Death, Cannibal Holocaust. I've seen all I own these movies. I've seen them multiple times. Crash, the David Lynch movie, uh, The Human Centipede, Hostel, um, even The Fly, I would put up there with that kind of thing. Very disturbing, very extreme movies, extreme gore, just just terrible things that you're witnessing in these movies. But I would single Midsummer out, I think, now as the most disturbing movie that I've ever seen. It just made me feel a way that those others didn't because there was something about... Now, Faces of Death, I will say especially, and I think Cannibal Holocaust too, especially if you saw it when it came out, are very disturbing movies because they're played off as as legitimate. Like, Faces of Death is played as a documentary. And if you don't know that most of this stuff is staged and set up, and these are actors, because it's all no-name people then you really think you're watching videos of people being killed. And that's the whole setup of Faces of Death. It's just watch, here are people that have died on camera. And you can see it. And it, it turned out it was all fake. But when I watched it, I thought it was real. Because that's what I had been told. So that was pretty disturbing. But I think I was I was like, I don't know what it was. I was like a teenager when I watched that. So I was almost just more like desensitized. I had such a feeling myself of, of immortality. You know, I hadn't been diagnosed as diabetic yet, so I hadn't really thought about death a lot at that point in my life. So I don't know what it was. It was just a different time. You know, when you're a teenager, you think about things, especially like death, differently than you do 
when you get older. It's a lot more cavalier. And this movie treated death that way. It was just like a, uh, it was so like matter of fact and brutal with the way that it, it handled it. And the gore in this movie, the spe- the, the practical effects, there's no CGI, like fake blood squirting. This is real, real fake blood. I should say that they're putting on the actors and that's shooting out of them and things like that. And they're using real effects to graphically show you the way that people are being killed in this movie. And the way that the people around them are reacting to it is almost just so it's just chilling stuff because they've become so desensitized. So I, it's hard to tell you a lot about why it's disturbing without blowing anything of the movie. But I just want to say that there are just, there's some things that Astro did in this movie that I have never seen done in a movie to this level of real. Um, and, with this kind of level of grit and uh, the, I think the special effects team had to have had a blast coming up with the ways they did to do this, but it probably creeped them the hell out because it looks all very, like you really think you're looking at, you know, a mutilated body the way that they do it in this movie in ways that I've never seen it done before. Um, And it just completely creeped me out. And at, at times again, feels like you're watching a documentary. The whole thing is so low key down to earth um, that it just feels like you're watching something real and it's very disturbing stuff, very scary stuff. And I, I, I didn't like this one nearly as much as I liked, uh, hereditary. I thought hereditary was so good because of how great its characters were. The performances from top to bottom were fantastic. It had this really rich cast, um, of great actors and, veteran actors, like three really, really good actors at the very top of that cast um, who have been around for a long time. And this one was really all young people. But I got to say, Florence Pugh was a powerhouse in this movie. She kind of showed herself as somebody that I think could be in contention for an Oscar at some point. Not She's not going to be for this movie because it's just, you know, it's horror. They don't do that. But in the future, I could definitely see her being in contention for one because she showed a range in this movie that is uncommon to see, especially in a horror film. And she was chilling. She was um, completely sympathetic. She was uh, also she could get irritating at times uh, where you just didn't even want to see her anymore. And it was all in treatment of the character. It wasn't because she's irritating or whatever. It was it was just great acting on her part. So I was just blown away by her performance. I thought she carried, this is a two and a half hour movie also, by the way. So this is a long, one of the longest horror movies you're ever going to see bar none. And she carries the whole thing. I mean, it's really down to her. The other guys are so flat and that's why I didn't like this movie as much as I liked hereditary because this one just doesn't feel nearly as revelatory as that one did because it's just the, the guys are all, exactly the way that you think that horror movie, you know, victims usually are, which they're unsympathetic and you don't really mind seeing them get killed. And that's a problem. That's always been a problem for me with a lot of horror movies. That's the ones like Rosemary's baby or the exorcist, where I start to feel for the people who are, you know, getting going under the knife or whatever, who are getting chased. Those are the the ones that I think are always the most effective and hereditary was that way. Midsummer not so much. Only there's really only one, maybe two characters that you care about at all, but then when you start to think about it after it's over, how good do you feel about their choices and who they were revealed to be in the end? So just a very there's a lot to unpack with this one. It's, it's like I said, truly disturbing. I would recommend you go see it if you 
have a high threshold for gore. And if you uh, don't mind seeing things on screen that are really extreme, I mean, this is not like, this isn't like Friday the 13th where he's chasing somebody and, you know, we see the big knife and then he, you know, he stabs him and we see like the the knife go into this fake looking body and come out and there's a little, there's some blood on it or whatever. I mean, this is ext- really extreme stuff um, that you're being shown on screen and that you're just having to sit with. And in the backdrop, you've got this beautiful Swedish um, countryside and the whole, the juxtaposition is just so jarring and, uh, the theater was just like completely silent the whole time. Uh, when we saw it, there were only like six other people in there with us, but it was very silent. I didn't hear like people really gasping much, which kind of, uh, uh, does shock me based on some of the things that were in it, but it was just extreme, extreme stuff. Uh, and it's really makes me excited to see more of what Ari Aster is going to do. I think I said on this show after watching hereditary, like this guy, I cannot wait to see what he's going to do next because he's a legitimate powerhouse and he'll probably end up going into drama or whatever and that that's fine i mean you don't need to just be a a genre director all the time the greats have kind of moved out of that i mean polanski moved out of he didn't just do horror movies and kubrick didn't just do horror movies and you know the best john carpenter they didn't just do horror movies they moved out of that genre to kind of expand it a little bit too and showed why they were some of the best directors ever and i think uh, Astor will probably end up doing that as well, but I wouldn't mind seeing him do a few more horror movies because we need these. We need a guy like this making scary movies because they're truly chilling, disturbing. And he pulls out, he's, he's not afraid to show anything. Like he'll go anywhere. And that's something that most horror movies just don't do. They usually will go right to the edge and then they're going to pull away because it's going to be too disturbing. It's going to turn people off if they don't go all the way or if they, if they, you know, don't pull back a little bit, but he just doesn't. He just goes all the way and lets you see things and makes you look at things that are just so ugly and awful. And he did it in Hereditary a little bit, but he went even more so in Midsummer. So like I said, very disturbing. If you see this movie, I would love to know your thoughts on it um, and where it goes, where it goes with the characters. There's, like I said, plenty to unpack about this one. Um and I, you know, I just wonder what you guys kind of uh, thought about it, but I was, <laughs> I was really disturbed by it. Anyway, it's called Midsummer. It's directed by Ari Aster. It stars Florence Pugh, and it is now in theaters. Do people just sleep here? Yeah, all the younger ones until we turn thirty-six, and then we move to the laborer's house. Why thirty-six? Well, we think of life like the seasons. So you're a child until you're eighteen, and that's spring. And then at some point, we all do our pilgrimage, which is between eighteen and thirty-six, and that's summer. And then from uh, 36 to 54, we're a working age, which is fall. And then finally from 54 to 72, you become a mentor. What happens at 72? All right, as I said at the opening there, uh, if you want to follow me on Instagram, at Mr. Clint Davis, uh, you can see all the movies I'm watching on a nightly basis. I watch, I don't know, four or five at least a week, usually, um, especially toward the end of the week. I'm, I'm watching at least, you know, one every night there. Uh, and people have asked me where I get all the movies. I, I get them. Most of them come from the library. Uh, usually the library is a great, I've talked about it on the show before. If you don't like take advantage of your local library and you love movies and TV, then you're really missing uh, a 
very easy way to watch like some of the things that are hard to find, especially that's what I usually use the library for just those movies that you're, you're never going to find them. Like Netflix is not going to pick up some of these old uh, esoteric movies that weren't big award winners, but were really good nonetheless. Uh, but the library has them like that's, that's what they've got. So, and they're usually in good shape. I mean, most of the time uh, people take good care of the discs when they don't, it's, it's, it's painful, but um that's the best thing. So if you live, especially if you live in a city or near a city, look into your library and search and, and find the movies that you've always wanted to watch. Cause I pretty much would guarantee that they've got them. And like I live the Columbus library is what I use. And they've got Blu-rays of almost every one of these movies, like Blu-rays of old. I've been able to watch like a Blu-ray of the public enemy, you know, and little Caesar. I watched that on Blu-ray. So, uh, it's, it's, um, amazing what you can find there. There's almost nothing you can't find there. And especially with streaming now, um, there's, there's plenty to watch when you use apps like Hoopla, um, and Canopy, which are linked to your library account. So, uh, cool stuff. So that's where I get them most of the time. But the best thing I watched this month actually came out of my own collection. It was one I hadn't watched in years. And oh my God, how did I forget how fucking good this movie is? 1942's Casablanca. I know you've probably heard, it's like the most overplayed out, like since Citizen Kane, it's, it's, everybody talks about how great it is, but there's a reason for that. Uh, and there's a reason for it for Citizen Kane too. I'm sure I know with those movies that get all that hype and that when they're really old like that, like you look at them and you, you're like, is there really anything that's going to speak to me in this? I mean, this thing's almost a hundred years old and it's been hyped by all these film historians and all that, but th- does that make me want to watch it more or less? I don't know. I know how it is. I've been there. But just take it from me. If you listen to this show, then you probably think there's uh, that not, what I'm saying is worth a dime or two. So Citizen Kane, absolutely worth your time. Unquestionably, you need to sit down and watch it. It's very short. It's a quick watch, and it is still so fresh. And, like, there are movies that come out now that look half as good as Citizen Kane looked. Same for Casablanca, 1942. Uh, this movie is so perfect from top to bottom perfect movies are very hard to come by there's always something you can nitpick on but this is one of those that you cannot find a flaw in i swear to god there's nothing wrong with it whatsoever the characters are so good so rich every performance is spot on every bit of casting is exactly what it called for the music's fantastic the look of it is just gorgeous film is film noir 101 when you think about the fact that it was made in 1942 before America was involved in World War II and it, you know, talks so much about Nazis and all that and, and you know, they're the bad guys in the movie. You think about the balls that this film had uh, coming out. It's just, it's, it makes it even better when you think of it that way. It's just the whole thing is just perfect. It has one of the best settings in movie history in the bar that, uh, you know, Humphrey Bogart's character Rick owns um, most of the first half of the movie takes place just in that bar and it proves to be such a great setting for it and Casablanca as a whole proves to be a great setting for a movie as well because there's so much intrigue going on and everyone's so desperate to get out of there because it's you know French territory but it's unoccupied by Nazis so everyone's trying to get out and it's just a bunch of refugees who no one belongs to Casablanca but everyone is stuck there forever until this war is going to end or until they can save enough money to buy a ticket out of the place. So it's just a great setting for a movie. It's it's just so fantastic. All the performances are completely top-notch. Like I said, Bogart, I mean, it's the movie that kind of made him a legend. Ingrid Bergman, who, to me, of the old classic Hollywood 
you know, women, she is, I mean, she's right up there with Catherine Hepburn for me as far as best actor, uh, best woman actors ever. Uh, Paul Henry is so good. Claude Rains, Sidney Greenstreet, Peter Laurie. How can you beat Peter Laurie? I mean, everything he's in is, is great and he's always, he's always fantastic. So it's just a, it's just top to bottom, a perfect movie. And while I was watching it, you know, I hadn't seen, I hadn't watched Casablanca in probably 10 years. I would say was the last time I watched it. I watched it with Andy for the first time ever. I'd never seen it. He was like, you've never seen Casablanca when we were in college together. He came over and we watched it. He had never seen Pulp Fiction. And so I showed him that one. So it was a great night of movies. But I hadn't rewatched it since then, just for whatever reason. I just hadn't gotten back around to it. But then I did, and oh my God, the whole time I'm just sitting there with everything I know now about movies, and I'm just marveling at, oh my God. I mean, I liked it before, but I didn't truly realize kind of that we're talking about legitimately what could be considered the best movie ever made uh, right here. And it's not hyperbole at all. It just earns it completely. It's just top to bottom flawless just a fantastic movie and by the way one more thing i want to say about casablanca michael curtiz is the guy who directed this one of the great directors ever and i have to say that today's directors complete wimps all right michael curtiz directed three movies in 1942 alone casablanca was the last of the three the other two all right being one was a musical biopic and one was a war movie. Both of them had Jimmy Cagney in them. All three of those movies were nominated for Oscars, okay? All three of them nominated for Oscars in separate categories. Two of them were nominated for Best Picture. Two of them were nominated for Best Director for Curtis. He ended up winning for Casablanca, and Casablanca won Best Picture, of course. Uh, but I'm just saying, like, this was just, and this wasn't any any year that was out of the ordinary for him as far as doing a bunch of movies he did three movies usually every single year he followed this up by doing two more movies in 1943 so they gave him a little breathing room in 1943 but i mean michael curtis was a workhorse can you imagine today's directors if there's a director today that directs a best picture winner like i was thinking about tom mccarthy the the, the other day who did spotlight he hasn't done another movie since then. I mean, that's been now, that's like almost four years ago that that movie came out. And he still hasn't done another movie. And that's how it is now. You do a big movie, even if you don't do a big movie, directors will do a movie every two years now. Maybe one a year if they're like the ultimate workhorses. But like guys like Curtiz, who back in the studio days did three movies a year, all three of them nominated for Oscars, all three of them good, if not great. Never going to happen again. It will absolutely never happen again. So the fact that a guy who had done two movies already that year put Casablanca together as the director just shows how Hollywood was done back in the day and how on all cylinders everybody was at all times. They were so professional. They were just true pros. And, you know, Curtiz wasn't this big auteur. You know, that was back before auteurs really were a thing. So he didn't have too much power, and that's probably the way that it, it should be because there were so many great movies being made back then by guys that were just under contract, cranking them out, and they were just good at making films. It's just what they did. Like some people are, you know, good at building cars at the GM plant, just good at putting that bumper on. They're just great at it. You know, if they put that thing on, you know, it's never going to fall off. Michael Curtiz was just good at making movies. That's it. He just was good at being a director. He wasn't writing screenplays. He was just directing movies, and he was nailing it. So three movies in one year. What a badass. Today's 
directors couldn't even, no one could come close to that today. Like Steven Soderbergh is the only guy who comes close to that at all today. He does sometimes two movies a year and that's incredible because he writes them too. Uh, but just the, I can't, I just can't imagine, you know, when you look back on the way it used to be. Oh, Especially tonight. Why did you have to come to Casablanca? There are other places. I wouldn't have come if I'd known that you were here. Believe me, Rick, it's true. I didn't know. Funny about your voice, how it hasn't changed. I can still hear it. Richard, dear, I'll go with you any place. We'll get on a train together and never stop. Don't, Rick. I can understand how you feel. You understand how I feel. How long was it we had, honey? I didn't count the days. Well, I did. Every one of them. Mostly I remember the last one. The wow finish. A guy standing on a station platform in the rain with a comical look on his face because his insides had been kicked out. Can I tell you a story, Rick? Has it got a wow finish? I don't know the finish yet. Go on, tell us. Maybe one will come to you as you go along. All right, before I send you out the door, last thing I always like to do is give you a couple of things streaming on Netflix and on Amazon that are worth your time, since, I mean, this is the stream police, after all. i got to earn our name somehow. So the best things now streaming, new this month, on Netflix and Amazon, I'm going to give you one that's funny and one that's serious. Um, and these are four really good picks, if you ask me. These are four movies that I've, I've watched all four of them multiple times, and... I think I actually, yeah, I do. I own all four of these movies, and it's a, that's a sign that I really do love them. Netflix, first off, something funny for you. From 1980, it's Caddyshack. It might be the funniest movie ever made, all right? Uh, again, I'm not trying to just slam you with hyperbole today, but Caddyshack is as funny as movies get. It's just a total renegade feeling that you get from watching those late 70s uh, movies. Um, and this is, was just Harold Ramis, basically, and his buddies, you know, Bill Murray and Chevy Chase and Ronnie Dangerfield, everybody just going uh, kind of wild at a country club filming a movie. So and it's just it's so funny. The lines never get old. The quotes will never die from this movie. Caddyshack is immortal. And it's now on Netflix. If you've never gotten around to it, it's still funny today. I still watch it. Anytime it's on TV, I pretty much watch it. And I'll try to watch it at least once every couple of years. And it just kills me every time I watch it. Ted Knight as Judge Smales alone is one of the best villain portrayals that you're ever going to watch, especially in a comedy. I mean, the buffoonish like guy who takes himself too seriously in a, in a totally absurd comedy. Brilliant. Ted Knight and Caddyshack. Something serious for you now streaming on Netflix from 1976. It's Taxi Driver. Taxi Driver, to me, really is like the quintessential, when you think of those that new American style in the 1970s that was pioneered by guys like Martin Scorsese, Taxi Driver is kind of that. Like, it's everything that that some of the, the guys that grew up watching this stuff would end up going on to be like Quentin Tarantino in the 1990s. Taxi Driver kind of invented that. And these really gritty New York City movies that I love so much from the 1970s. That was just a great era of movies coming out of being made in New York, on the streets of New York. And Taxi Driver is like the quintessential example of that. Paul Schrader on the screenplay, uh, Scorsese directing it. De Niro is at, at top form. Sybil Shepard is fantastic. Jodie Foster, uh, terrific in this movie. Um, 
it's just one of those American classics, Taxi Driver from 1976. Give it a watch. Netflix also, I will say, I, I knock them a lot for not putting a lot of great movies out anymore streaming um, and just relying too much on originals. But this was a great month for new movies uh, coming out on Netflix. Uh, there have been a lot of good ones. Mean Streets is now on there. Rain Man, uh, which is one of those Best Picture winners that I still really like to go back and watch. Philadelphia. Very good movie, The Hangover. You know, one of the most, one of the funniest movies of of this generation. All those are now on Netflix for you, just in the last month. Plus, like I said, Caddyshack and Taxi Driver. All right, moving over to Amazon now. Something funny for you as well from the same year. Can you believe that in 1980, Caddyshack and Airplane both came out? I'm giving you Airplane on Amazon again. Totally, like there's nothing else like it. There would be a bunch of movies that would rip it off, but up to that point, this was such a like a unique, just weird movie where everything in it is a joke. Like there is no room to breathe when you're watching Airplane. Every single thing in it is funny. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar does probably the funniest like cameo performance that you could ever have in a movie. Every other cameo that's come in a movie pretty much pales in comparison to Kareem and uh, Airplane. He's just brilliant in it. Uh, and all the performances, I mean, from... Leslie Nielsen to Lloyd Bridges and everybody in between, Peter Graves. It's just it's such a great movie uh, that's just so unique in the world of comedy uh, up to that point. So Airplane from 1980. If you missed this one, please give it a watch because it's still funny today. And uh, also on Amazon, something very serious for you from 2003. It's Elephant from Gus Van Sant. This is one of those that if you like art house movies, if you don't like art house movies, if you don't like artsy cinema, you might not like this one very much because this is a really quiet, put the pieces together for yourself kind of movie. The acting is very understated. This is not like a typical Hollywood movie, but I think it's a really important movie and it's a really good indie. Um, and it shows Gus Van Zandt. I mean, we've seen him make a lot of really good movies, but this is this is probably my favorite of all of his movies. Um, and it just hits you hard, especially in the days after all the shootings that we've had at schools. This movie is about a school shooting. Again, the movie was made in 2003, so it's post-Columbine, um, and it's very inspired by Columbine, at least the main characters are, um, and it just kind of gets into what goes on in a situation like that, what leads to it, uh, and how no one sees it coming, but nothing in Elephant is obvious. It's all very oblique, uh, and it's all um, just, like I said, it's an, it's an art house movie in every way. It's not like nothing's really pieced together for you 100%. And the way the shooting is shot is very frightening, but um, intense. It's kind of very realistic, just right in there with them. And not like overly, not bloody, gory, anything like that. Nothing uh, nothing gratuitous. It's just, uh, you know, stunning kind of the way it's done. So Elephant from 2003 right now is on Amazon. If you never saw that one, uh, give it a watch if that kind of uh, subject matter won't bother you too much. All right, that's going to do it for this month's edition of the Stream Police. Next month, hopefully, you know, Andy will be back so uh, he can uh, spin some more tales from music history for you right here on the show. If he'll come out of his room and stop listening to Springsteen just for a half hour. It's all I'm asking, man, a half hour. It's all I want. Uh, and I'll talk more TV and movies with you. Until then, reach out to me at theclintdavis at gmail.com, T-H-E, clintdavis at gmail.com. And uh, follow me on Instagram and on Twitter at Mr. Clint Davis, M.R. Clint Davis. Thank you very much, my friend. Drive safely out there. And until next time, stream on. Planning. 
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.